This episode of Giants of Crowns is brought to you by Vettery. Vettery is an online hiring marketplace that connects top tech talent with growing companies. All candidates are fully vetted before appearing on Vettery, and a new batch of candidates appears every Monday morning. Great for startups or anyone looking to expand their tech team. Vettery also released a comprehensive tech salary report for 2018, and in it you can learn exactly how much software engineers are getting paid, use it to make the right offers, and build the best team. Vettery's salary report is available to Giants and Crowns listeners for free at vettery.com forward slash Giants and Crowns. That's V-E-T-T-E-R-Y dot com forward slash Giants and Crowns. My name is Mars Mundy, and I am the CEO of CarServe, which is a software company providing solutions to the automotive repair industry. Nice, nice. Why don't you kind of uh, back us into like how you got started with CarServe and um, how the idea came up? Absolutely. Uh, it's actually, it was kind of an interesting experience. Um, I have been living in Austin, Texas, for about seven years, I moved down here to go to law school at the University of Texas. And about three days after I graduated from law school, my car broke down. Uh, I had like a, an old Ford Explorer at the time. It was like 12 years old and it only had 100,000 miles on it. So it didn't seem like it should really be at the end of its life cycle, but it was having all kinds of problems. It, it basically, I couldn't even drive it. So since I didn't grow up here, I couldn't reach out to like a family member and say, Hey, who's that mechanic that you trust? You know, the one person that's not going to screw me over when I'm, when I'm taking my car into the shop. And I went on Yelp. I went on Google and, and looked for repair places. And, you know, Austin is a very social city. So if, uh, if a new restaurant opens up, they get a hundred Yelp reviews in a week, but I couldn't seem to find an auto repair place that had more than like five reviews, which always makes me skeptical. So I, um, I took a shot. I went, I went to a place up the street from where I was living at the time, dropped my car off in the morning. They gave me kind of the typical spiel of, okay, sure. We'll, we'll take a look at it. We'll give you a call when we've figured out what's wrong and kind of break down, you know, why it's going to cost what it's going to cost. And so, okay, thank you. Left, went back home and two o'clock rolled around, three o'clock rolled around. I didn't hear from them. I called the shop. I couldn't get the right guy on the phone. He was always out doing something else, picking up a part in the other part of the shop, something. And so I had to walk back up there at about four. And it turned out they hadn't even done anything to my car. It had been sitting parked in the same place where I dropped it off that morning. Uh, I was kind of pissed. And so the next morning I took it to a different place and I said, you know what, I'm just going to sit here in the little waiting area and kind of stare at the person behind the desk. Maybe that'll pressure them into doing something. And I was there for about four hours and there was a guy working behind the desk. I noticed that he was on his phone and on the computer simultaneously, basically the entire morning. So he called me up about lunchtime and he said, hey, listen, I have some bad news for you. The repairs are actually going to cost more than your car is worth. I would not spend any money getting your car fixed. You just need to sell it, scrap it. Um, and that was tough to hear. 
but I was distracted because I was so interested in what he was doing behind the desk. And so I sort of, I started kind of just politely asking questions. I said, Hey, just out of curiosity, like, what are you doing on the computer? Does your job involve software? I don't know anything about your job. So I'm just kind of curious. He said, Oh yeah, sure. Let me show you my, my software screen or sorry, my computer screen. And he turned it to face me and it was a green screen. And he said, Hey, listen, this is, you know, this is what we use to run the shop. It's called a management system. I said, okay, cool. So what are you doing on the phone? It seems like you're on the phone constantly. And he said, well, we've got to, to build a job when someone brings their car and we've got to call our parts suppliers. So we got to make like four or five calls. And then we've got to build the job in our management system. We've got to calculate, you know, the labor and, and which parts we need. Then we got to call the customer and get them to approve the work. Usually that's phone tag. We're leaving voicemails. It takes a little while to get that approved. And then we've got to call the parts people back and see who can get us the part the quickest. And I said, wow, you know, I don't know anything about this, but it seems like you could automate that and make it a lot faster and make it a lot more convenient for the customer. He said, well, you know, this is just the way it's done. This is the way our, our business has always been done. I said, okay, appreciate it. Thank you for your time. And, and I tried to figure out what I was going to do to get home. Um, and I kept thinking about that experience. I kept thinking about how painful the customer experience was, but also how sort of disorganized the shop seemed to be. And they were very nice but it was clear that their job was really kind of chaotic. And so I reached out to some colleagues, a couple of folks at Famigo, which was an ed tech company I'd worked at during law school, some other colleagues in Austin. I said, hey, listen, I think I've got an idea for a solution that could improve the customer experience of automotive repair. And kind of pitched it to two or three folks and said, sure, that, that's interesting, but you haven't worked in a repair facility. You don't really understand the pain points at a very deep level. You need to understand the why of the problem and, and, the, and the pain points at a really deep level before you can provide a solution. And I heard that from enough people that I respected. And so I decided to put off taking the bar and I spent the next year working in auto repair facilities around Austin. Um, I worked behind the desk. I ran errands for them. I would talk to their customers and check them in and then just ask questions, ask them what they were doing. I tried to teach myself how to use their software. Mm. I'm not embarrassed to admit that I could not really figure out how to do it. <laughs> and, uh, it was really humbling. You know, I came in really with this, this whole thesis of how do we improve the customer experience? This is such a painful experience for car owners. And so I was really empathizing with that part of the experience. And after spending time in shops, I began to have a ton of empathy for everyone working in the shops because I realized just how difficult their jobs were and how technology was not enabling their jobs to be easier or more convenient or you know making their workflow more seamless. And so I came away really feeling very strongly that in order to enable an improvement or a transformation to the customer experience, you would have to improve things on the back end of the shops. And so I've been full time, you know, obsessed with this for the past four years. Uh, and it all started with my car breaking down. Wow. So can you speak to like how, how you got that first job? I mean, I've tried to get a job at McDonald's and that's a whole, that's a whole other story, but um, they they tell me I'm overqualified or like they're skeptical. Like, why do you want to work here? Your background doesn't make much sense. I've tried again, like yeah. just straight up lying, <laughs> like creating like a fake resume. So I'd love to mm -hmm. love to know what that experience is like and how you navigated through it. Yeah, that's an interesting question. So I went back to the shop that was really honest with me that had told me to sell my car. And I figured the guy behind the desk was really nice. So maybe I could, you know, hang out there and, and talk to his customers. 
And after a while he was like, yeah, I mean, you could do this, but why don't you just talk to our shop owner? And it turns out the, the guy who ran the shop was like an old school blues musician from Austin who had sort of stumbled into auto repair. And he was very chill and very low key. And I was like, hey, listen, man, I, I'd be happy to just like help out around the shop. You know, I, I don't have background in auto repair, but I can answer the phones and talk to people and stuff like that. He's like, I mean, sure, you know, we can't pay you that much, but we do need some help at the desk. We had someone quit last week and I was like, wow, really? It was surprisingly easy. And I later learned that the reason it's surprisingly easy is because there's an insane amount of turnover in this industry. There is not really like a good, reliable job board or posting for, you know, any kind of central place to find skilled technicians. You've probably heard there's been a bunch of news stories in the last couple of years about how there's this huge shortage of truckers in the U.S. It's the same thing with automotive technicians. So they see people really cycle in and out quickly. And so he he'd had a person really get angry at a customer and scream at them and get fired the week before. And he was like, hey, you don't seem like you're going to scream at people. So sure, we'll <laughs> test you out. So why is that happening? I mean, it's a bit of a tangent, but why why do you think there's a shortage of automotive technicians? Well, a couple things. A lot of what's happened in the auto repair industry at a high level and, and then kind of at a more granular level can be traced back to the financial crisis. Um So when the financial crisis happened, about 3,000 dealerships closed across the country. And that the dealerships are usually a little bit bigger than the independent shops. And so that meant that about 40,000 service bays closed within about a two-year period from 2008 to 2010. So what's, what's a service bay? A service bay is just where the car is driven in in a, in a service facility. Where like if you walk by and you see a car up on a lift, the bay is where they kind of drive your car in so they can examine it and fix it. That's kind of how the, the shop is broken down. Got it. Um, and so you you kind of, kind of not overnight, but in a, in a really quick period, you you lost a, you know a ton of service capacity, and and also because of that, a ton of jobs and. Uh, fewer and fewer people are going through the technical training academies to get their, you know, their qualifications to become automotive technicians, even though it can be a pretty well-paying job. I think the average salary, yearly salary for a technician is about $60,000 a year. Um, so it's it's a similar kind of thing with trucking. I mean, it, it, there's a, a huge need and even, um, you know, potentially a pretty good salary, but people just don't think of it as the kind of thing they really want to do. Um, and I think there's also real concerns, valid concerns that, hey, is this a job that, you know, I'm going to be replaced by a robot in 10 years? Right. What well, is that? Is that a similar concern for, are you saying that's a similar concern for automotive technicians? That there's yeah. this, oh, really, I, I would think that that's a much more complicated uh, solve, like having robots change out parts in vehicles that have various configurations which probably also could speak to your platform like i would imagine that's a that's a bigger that's a bigger lift from a from a technological technological standpoint oh we're we're decades away from anything like that but you know when you when you think about what gets press attention um in the mobility sector today it's always uh i mean elon musk probably more than anything else but then after elon musk and tesla it's ride sharing and it's autonomous vehicles because those are the most interesting impactful things and autonomous vehicles are just an exciting idea 
And so for better or worse, I think that's given people the impression that we're going to be seeing, you know, a ton of autonomous vehicles on the road in the next two or three or six years, Interesting. Uh, which is just not realistic. Yeah, um, not- I, I'm hopeful. I'm, I, I'd love for that to be the case, but we're very, very, very early in that process. Um, but it's just led to, I think there's kind of a trickle down effect where, you know, you don't have as many applications to these technical training schools because for a while there were very few job opportunities technicians and now it's kind of come back the other way so we need more technicians than ever now and the technical training schools are doing everything they can do to grow their enrollment because we need you know we we need 50,000 skilled automotive technicians next year wow wow okay so so taking a step back so you spent some time working at this at this auto repair uh, facility or garage, mm-hmm. what's what's the proper language? Garage shop or auto repair? I, 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 always, I always say repair shop. Repair shop. Um, a, lot, a lot of people say garages. They're kind of interchangeable. Um, cool. So you spent some time at this as this uh, repair shop, and mm-hmm. you started to identify certain pain points. Like what? What was the I guess the step thereafter? Like. How did you, I mean, prior to the call, we had some issues with, uh, or we were working through some technical things and you admitted that you're not the most technical person. So did you, <laughs> did you learn the code and you built this and you forgot all of it? Or like, like, did you, and, uh, did you find it? I can barely use my iPhone sometimes. <laughs> I, um, I, I realized very quickly that, you know, to test, I read the lean startup, you know, I got advice from people about different kind of books to read if you're thinking about starting a company. And I realized, you know, I need some kind of minimum viable product. How do I get that? Um, and so I reached out against some colleagues uh, around town, a uh, close friend at the time who was an early stage startup. And he said, yeah, you, need, you just need a dev shop. You need, you need to find a software development firm that's affordable. Um, and I said, okay, how do I do that? And he said, well, you know, you can go to different places in Austin that like meetup events where you might be able to connect with someone. You could go to Capital Factory, which is always kind of the center of a lot of tech activity in Austin. You could try different places like that. So I kind of did that, you know, research different uh, development firms in Austin and then talked to about 10. And I think nine of them were way out of my budget. You know, I could put in a little bit of money and I could get some friends and family to put in a little bit of money. But, you know, most of them were three, four times the amount I could afford. But I did find a great group that was willing to do it for something that uh, for a price I could manage. And they spent time with me in the facilities. Um, you know, we, we went into the shops together. We talked to mechanics. Um, we we went and got, got feedback from them and sort of said, hey, we, we, we storyboarded with them. We did sort of, you know, user testing with them. And then they, from there, they were able to build a very basic um, MVP. And, and I got it into a couple of shops. You know, they weren't paying us much, about $10 a month, but got into a few shops. And that is what enabled us to, or really what enabled me, it was just me at that point, to get into Techstars. Oh, so nice. So, so you had... You'd built up an MVP, uh, mm-hmm. collected a couple of sales, and then applied to Techstars. Like the the what was the decision to go into Techstars? Could could you have 
you know, when I talk to a couple of companies, like they, there's, there's always this decision about how you want to go about capitalizing the business, whether you're going to run off, yep. run off the revenues of the business, or if you're going to take in some VC capital, or if you're going to take in mm-hmm. like friends and family or join an accelerator mm-hmm. for all these other reasons. So what was your thought process um, prior to going to Techstars? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think that's such an important question. Um, you know, obviously, if you're fortunate enough to have the means to raise a decent round from friends and family, then, you know, more power to you. That's awesome. The people I really admire are those who can bootstrap it, which is just incredible. Um, for me, a lot of that was about, okay, I, I know I need to raise some money, but I also knew that I had a lot to learn as far as running a business and, and growing a team. And so I felt like an accelerator program would be kind of the, the best case scenario. Um, and I'd done some research and, I, you know, of course, I'd heard of Y Combinator and 500 startups and things like that. And I knew that Techstars was in Austin. So at, as I like the week I hired the, the dev shop to, to work for me, um, I met with the managing director of Techstars in Austin. I got an appointment on his calendar. His name was Amos Schwartzfarb. And I said, hey, listen, you know, I've got this cool idea. You know, do you think maybe I could apply to Techstars? And he said, well, you know, the application's closed in a couple months. Um, I think you're really early, maybe next year, but you know, you can go ahead and apply. And I said, okay, what do you think I could do? Like what, what would give me a good chance of being accepted? It's just me. I don't have a CTO or anything like that. And he said, well, if you can't find you know someone else to really commit to this with you, get some kind of traction. You know, if you can get this product built and get someone to pay you for it and actually use it in the next three months, then, you know, cool. Maybe we'll see about getting into tech stars. And, and he told me afterwards, after we got accepted, like, he did not expect that to happen at all. You know, he sort of thought maybe I'll see this guy again in 18 months. But we came back three months later and we had a few customers. We had a little bit of revenue, but it was proof enough that people were willing to pay for it. And and Techstars was the best thing that could have happened to me and, and to CarServe. Wow. So before we talk, before we jump into why Techstars is or was what it was for you, what was uh, what's been your process around, I guess, uh, closing down sales, especially in this industry where there are folks who are accustomed to things being the way it has been. Yeah, that's, that's a, always a, a big challenge for us. Um, you know, initially my thought process was, Hey, let, I'll go out and try and get this into a lot of independent facilities around Austin and in San Antonio. And then maybe we can kind of grow from there. And soon after we, we left Techstars, I started talking with some sort of C-level people at different um, national chains and repair franchisers. And I realized that they had the same problems that all of the independent shops had. I had sort of naively uh, assumed that these big companies, you know, the Jiffy Lubes and the Pet Boys and the other groups out there that, you know, are $500 million companies, I assumed that they would have a much more sophisticated software solution that they would be doing things at a much higher level than some of these independent facilities. And that just wasn't the case. And so what I realized was that the best way to attack this market and get traction was actually to approach the enterprise groups and find enterprise groups that really were looking to make technology a competitive advantage because it's so tough to acquire, you know, independent customers, the customer acquisition costs can be high. Whereas if you can get a couple of those big enterprise groups, suddenly you've got massive scale and then you can find more creative ways to go after the more fragmented SMBs. Got it. Got it. 
So those those enterprise groups are they like listed on LinkedIn or something, or did you have to? How did you go about acquiring uh, sort of like your your hit list, if you will? Good, really good question. Um, LinkedIn was useful, but this is also a really old school industry where they have a ton of conferences. Yeah, uh, each state has kind of their auto service association. Texas has a couple. Um, California has a couple and, and most of the other states have at least one and they'll have kind of a monthly meeting, uh, you know, quarterly meeting of shop owners. And then there are two or three big conferences each year for the industry. And so I just started going to those, um, you know, at first as, as we were going through tech stars and soon after it was just me. I mean, I'd, I'd get a little, I'd buy a pass if I could afford it, I might get a booth and would just kind of over time, network and get connected with someone who could introduce me to someone who knew someone who was a CIO or a CTO or a CMO at, at one of these big groups. And, and kind of before we knew it, I mean, it took a while, but after, you know, 12, 18 months, we had built a really, really big sales pipeline. Nice. Nice. Today's episode is brought to you by Brilliant. Head over to brilliant.org forward slash giants and crowns or go to giantsandcrowns.com forward slash brilliant. You know, um, one of the reasons why we started Giants and Crowns uh, is to really focus on and exercise extracting lessons learned. We're hosting these conversations in the hopes that the actions taken by our guests, the decisions they've made can help inform the decisions that we will all make as business owners, as generalists, as scientists, as designers, as photographers, as, as producers, as creatives, but even more, more so than all that as lifelong learners. So I, I fundamentally think that, and I think you, you guys would agree as well, to be a great thinker, to be a great learner, you have to have multiple perspectives, multiple models, a diversity in perspective. You need to be multidisciplinary. Brilliant is hands down one of the best places to polish up and do that in an engaged and active, interactive way. And, you know, there's, there's actually this really dope quote by Charlie Munger. He talks about Charlie Munger, the partner of Warren Buffett um, over at Berkshire Hathaway and also an inspiration for the podcast. What he says is the first rule is that you've got to have multiple models because if you have just one or two that you're using, the nature of human psychology is such that you'll torture reality so that it fits your models. And the models have to come from multiple disciplines because all of the wisdom of the world is not to be found in one little academic department. That's crucial. Brilliant provides frameworks that are helpful for thinking and solving problems. Brilliant is a place where you can achieve true understanding by getting to the heart of a concept. Their courses are written by leading instructors and researchers who have worked to provoke natural curiosity and guide you through an interactive exploration of deep concepts and principles and ideas. So definitely check out Brilliant. Head over to brilliant.org forward slash Giants and Crowns or giantsandcrowns.com forward slash Brilliant. Support Giants and Crowns by doing that. And the first 200 folks from Giants and Crowns who sign up get uh, 20% off their first entire uh, premium subscription year. Um, so sign up, check it out. Let us know how, you, how, how you're enjoying it. Um, when we send out our weekly updates, respond with a screenshot or something. That, that'd be awesome. Let us know that you're part of the crew. Um, all right. Thank you so much. So you, you touched on a little bit on finances. So what what was what was that like in the early years? Um, I guess the early, I guess 
perhaps like tech stars going up you traditionally if the method is tech stars they, they give you some capital you guys have your yeah. pitch you raise some additional capital thereafter um but you spoke to being the only one after tech stars is that right so i was the only one prior to tech stars prior to tech stars, um yeah. then at that point i brought on our cto who has has been with us since and has grown our engineering team and, and has been great. Uh, his name is Dustin Blanchard, and you know from TechStars we we raised kind of a pre-seed round after that, um, and we realized just based on the work we'd done with the local facilities and the conversations we were starting to have with larger groups that it was just going to be a long process to build out the solution we wanted to build because it had to be, and it is now, a really robust piece of software. It needs to be able to run the entire facility, the back end, help them manage their employees, help them order parts and manage inventory and kind of all the the back end workflow tasks, plus have a built-in CRM that's engaging with the customer while their car's in the shop, and then have a predictive analytics dashboard where they can see reports on, you know, revenue, profit, you know, customer satisfaction, things like that. So we were just, we raised enough so we could build the product we wanted to. And then once we had that product and we had our pipeline and we started to get customers, we realized, okay, now it's time just to try and raise more money and we um you know it's funny enough the the first step for us in that actually earlier this year was i said okay well i'll apply for um for dream pitch maybe that'll be a good way if we can get some press or something maybe that'll be a good way to kick off this new funding round yeah and and you won you won dream (laughs) and so we got uh you know we're, we're pretty excited now the first the first check in this round now will be two hundred fifty thousand from Salesforce Ventures. Nice, um, that's wild. Which, which which is really helpful for us because we've 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 just raised from TechStars, which was great, yeah. And then Angel Groups, you know, no no VCs have not taken any institutional capital prior to this this Dream Pitch competition, and that's I think you know just kind of t- as an as a quick aside, I think this is a common conundrum faced by enterprise SaaS startups. Um, If you're building software for large companies, it's always going to be, can you raise enough? You know, you know, you're building to solve a big problem. Can you raise enough to get the product built? And then can you raise enough to give yourself enough runway so that you can get one or two of these large companies to say, you know what, we're going to take a chance and and work with an early stage company. And, And I think that's where a lot of enterprise software companies don't make it. It's not because the idea is not bad. It's not because they have not executed or they've built the wrong product or anything like that. They just don't have quite enough runway to get that first deal closed and get that recurring revenue from that first deal. Mm. And I think that is re- that's the hardest part of kind of getting from one to two or whatever you want to call it as, a, as an enterprise software company is you're young and all those big groups you want to work with are risk averse. So even though they may love your solution, they're thinking, okay, justifiably so, how are you going to solve problems and capably manage you know, uh, our business, which is, you know, a hundred million dollar year business or a billion dollar year business. How are you going to, going to do that with only 10 people or, mm. or, or five people or something like that? And, and, and you know, I, I think that's, that's tough. You've got to find the right fit and it's usually going to be 
a group that is a little more tech forward and I think more willing, I mean, more willing to take a risk, but also more willing, like I said earlier, to look at technology as a competitive advantage and say, hey, listen, this is worth the risk because even if the ROI is not everything we hope it'll be, it will give us an advantage over our competitors. Hmm. So the the sales process now, what does that what does that look like? Are you guys, yeah, what does that what does that typically look like? Is it still conferences, or are you do you now have like a, 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 a established sales team? So you're talking to our sales team. There you go. Um, <laughs> you're, you, right now you're talking to our sales team, our biz dev team, our funding team. There you go. And, um, but, but yeah, we, we do have a different process now because we have built this pipeline and now we've got contacts at all the biggest change in franchise. I mean, literally every single one in the aftermarket we've had, you know, at least, at least introductory conversations with a number of them we've moved through our pipeline. So really what that is, is we want to find the right person at the organization who is is high up enough that they can, if they're not a final decision maker, they can at least influence the decision and they can be kind of our champion. And I think that's what you're looking for as an enterprise startup at a big company. You want to find your champion, someone who's going to advocate for you within the organization and say, Hey, listen, I love this. Let me, let me, let me talk to my boss. Let me talk to my colleagues. Let me push this for us. That is usually, um, someone in a CIO or CTO or CMO role. It's usually one of those three. Mm, okay. That's interesting. So to take a step back a little bit, you talked about Techstars and it being transformative for you. Can you quickly touch on what, what happened there, what you learned through that process and, and how, um, I guess, would you do that again if looking back on the experience? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I was in a cohort with some really talented and some experienced entrepreneurs, you know, folks who, who were on their second or third startup, some folks who were first time founders, but they had worked at four or five startups and, and I was not coming from that background. You know, I, I had worked at one startup for a while, but I didn't have you know years of experience working in tech. And so tech stars, I think different accelerator programs kind of pitch themselves this way, but tech stars, uh, was was kind of like college and grad school combined for me for what it's like to run a company and, and grow a company. Um, they they start you off with really a your first month is all mentor meetings, and the purpose of that I mean it, it's sort of twofold, but one it's to get you in front of a really diverse group of people, all kinds of backgrounds, you know, salespeople, former CEOs, VCs, product people, engineers, et cetera, and have you pitch your idea and your vision to them and get feedback and get them to ask you tough questions. And in doing that, hopefully you kind of figure out, okay, there's a lot of things maybe we haven't thought of yet. And, and maybe we need to kind of pivot a little bit or, you know, this is really helping me distill down what the actual product needs to be and what the vision should be. Um, and then as part of that, kind of simultaneously, you're feeling out who's a good fit to be a mentor to your company. You, you get four to five mentors throughout the program and then beyond. So it could be someone who has connections in your industry. Maybe it's someone who's just a great mentor because of their background and you really feel like you want you know, a great product mentor or a sales mentor or, or a couple of those. And that was huge for us and, and huge for me personally. Um, and 
And then from there, really Techstars just was incredibly supportive in helping us figure out, okay, how do we want to pitch this vision at demo day? And what are, what are realistic goals that we can achieve in the next kind of six and 12 months and how will we do that? And what I kept hearing while we were in the program from people who had graduated and from mentors and, and, and folks like that was, you know what, you're actually going to get the most value out of Techstars once you finish the program and are out in the world doing things and you reach out to the network. You, you reach out to a Techstars person in New York and you say, hey, listen, I know you don't know me, but I went through Techstars Austin. I really need an intro to this investor. It looks like you're connected with them on LinkedIn. You reach out to a Techstars person whose company got acquired by Amazon. You say, hey, listen, I'm trying to connect with this right person at Amazon. Can you make an intro? And that, I mean, I can't, you know, I cannot overstate the value of, of the network. It has been huge for us. They've gotten us big partnerships, intros to some really high level VCs, some potential customers. And so it was really kind of everything, how to build a business, how to pitch VCs, the right kinds of mentors, and then a lot of advice on hiring and, and fundraising. Hmm. So the product now, you, you touched on the sort of evolution of the product and, and needing to raise capital to allow you to build this robust platform. Um, mm -hmm. How have you gone about deciding what you're going to build? I guess even and even before that, can you break apart what what car serve serves like what are the components of it um, and then how you've decided to build out these different features yeah absolutely um so you know at a high level think of it as a an erp in a sense um it's really a a business management solution um you know really running all the business processes for the repair facility and then it has a crm as part of that and then it has a business intelligence dashboard. So those are kind of the three solutions all packaged into one. Now we, we've built it out in a modular way so that especially as large groups are interested, we can say, hey, listen, you may not want to switch your entire point of sale, all these things over to CarServe from day one. So we can start off with something more, more light touch, more high level customer engagement, um, our lift integration which is, is a big value add for these facilities because they've never had courtesy vehicles uh, typically. But, you know, to, to, the, to the first part of the question, um, and I, I think this is really key, and, and there's a lot of luck involved in this, but we actually were fortunate enough to find a, a group of shops in Austin, as well as a national franchiser that were looking for a new solution and we're willing to give their time to basically give us feedback as we continue to build uh, on every single feature, the design, what the functionality actually needed to be, how they wanted it to look. So we basically had like a team of 30 dedicated, you know, future users giving us daily feedback. So we decided what to build based on what they told us they needed. And the way we started those conversations off, we said, what's the hardest part of your job? Like, what is the, what's the most important thing that you do every day? And what's the hardest part of that? And they would say, well, you know, we have to order parts dozens of times a day. We have to get the parts here quickly. We've got to manage the customer communications so that we, we get them to approve the work as quickly as possible. We want to increase our throughput. We, we Efficiency is like our big pain point and thing that we need to address. And so we say, okay, Let's untangle what you mean when you say efficiency. 
let's break the process down into every stage of your workflow. And just a single job, a single vehicle moving through the process, having just a very basic repair can entail 25 to 30 different steps. And it can entail an involvement of four to five employees at the facility. So it's a really complex process and it fails at various stages. So we try to just track that process and see, okay, how can we stop this? And how can we stop your workflow funnel from breaking here, from leaking here? What can we do to make sure that the right technician gets the right vehicle at the right time and the right parts are, are on the way? Um, and we were just lucky enough to get user feedback as we were building out the system in real time. And so that allowed us to get much closer to product market fit a lot earlier, I think, than we would have otherwise been able to. Does that make sense? So, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Like, I guess so. Looking back on that, what is uh, what's a major takeaway? Like, if you if you were to talk to the the younger version of yourself, knowing knowing what you know now, and had to go out and build, um, what would you do differently? I would have spent even more time in the shops with our engineering team earlier. You know, we did that later. But I think as you're thinking about products, there's, there's, especially as, as someone who's not an engineer, you get sidetracked, you get so many, I mean, I, I would write down dozens of ideas of all kinds of features, but the right way to think about that is, wait, wait, what is the problem you're trying to solve? Let's, let's start there. Let's not, let's not start with a solution. Let's start with a problem. And from there, you need to first answer why. Why is this the problem? And why is this problem more urgent than another problem? And you cannot answer those questions without feedback from users, regular feedback, A-B testing. You know, as much, you need to, to be absolutely certain that you're building something that people need. For B2B software, it has to be a need. You don't want to build something that you like or you think they might like. That's great. That could be something that's an add-on feature down the line that, that people may really enjoy. But if you want to build something that people are going to pay you money for, it has to be a solution to a real problem. Mm-hmm. I respect that. So um, fast forwarding a little bit, you, mm-hmm. you, you're now uh, a dream pitch winner. You're, you're a Techstars graduate. Um, how big is the team now? Uh, we have a team of 12 now. Team of 12. You have a 12-person team from humble beginnings of <laughs> building out an MVP a couple of years ago to, to now 12 people. Um, what would you say are some, and, and this, is, this is really more so for you personally, like how have you grown in these last, what is it, three, four years? That's a really good question. I think the biggest thing that that I've had to learn is how to be smart about time management. Um, You know, and that's something that people talk about a lot. And there are a lot of books out there on, you know, how to hack your time management, blah, 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 blah. I I think it's more about um, setting really realistic goals. And then I've actually found that you know, one, one really, one thing I learned early from a mentor who, who was, who was really fantastic. He said, you know, break down 
your key job responsibilities? You know, you have five jobs right now. So as part of those jobs, what are your key responsibilities? And then be really honest about what you're actually good at and what you're terrible at. And make sure that you are spending some slight majority of your time on the things that you're really good at, but you're not cutting out just because you hate those other things, you know, you can't, can't cut those out, but prioritize the things that you're good at that you feel like you can make a lot of progress on. Um, and, and that was, that was super helpful because you can, you can never do everything. Like it, it's all about, I think, figuring out how to, how to condense, you know, 200 hours of productivity into a 75, 80 hour work week. And I found, you know, everyone finds the little workflow tools and things like that, but I think there's a time management aspect if, you, if you're leading a team. And then I think the second big piece there is what kind of team are you trying to build? How do you, how do you hire the right people? Because I think a CEO's most important responsibility and, and also simultaneously their toughest job is hiring. Um, because if you make the wrong hire, that can set you back it's much more than a time cost. It, 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 the, the cost can be so, so big and so, so multifaceted. And so early on, you, you know, you have ideas about the culture and things like that. And that's really important, but you, you also need to have a, a, a process in place and a sense of like, who am I looking for? And I think the other big thing I've learned and, and it has been, you know, learning through trial and error is how to separate uh, tech people from startup people. There are a lot of people out there who are great tech people, who love working in tech, who can thrive at you know a mid-sized company or do really, really well at a Google or a Facebook or something like that. But very few of those people are actually startup people. And I think it's very important early on that you, that you are as certain as you can possibly be that the people you're thinking about hiring are startup people. This episode of Giants and Crowns is brought to you by High Five. Recently named one of Fast Company's most innovative companies of 2018, High Five simplifies business collaboration with a conferencing platform that builds connected cultures. It's the only all-in-one conferencing solution, including intuitive cloud software and purpose-built meeting room hardware. Plus, it's a high-quality experience with a 4K HDR camera and industry-leading audio powered by Dolby Voice. Growing fast with customers in over 100 countries, High Five is already trusted by the likes of Harry's, Rue La La, Expensify, The Atlantic, and Betterment. To learn more and start simplifying your team's video and audio conferencing, visit giantsandcrowns.com forward slash high five. How have you gone about finding um, the other tw- other 11 folks to join the team? All kinds of ways. Um, you know, AngelList has actually been really, really helpful. Uh, when I post jobs on AngelList, we get some great candidates quickly from all over the country. And so that was that has continued to be a really valuable source. We have now started to leverage UT and the fact that, you know, UT has an entrepreneurship um, master's program. They have a, a, a undergrad CS program that's getting better and they're pretty plugged into the tech community here. So we've really tried to leverage the fact that 
we've got some you know, young, talented people coming up through uh, different programs at UT. And then I think really the last big component there is Techstars. Techstars is really helpful for hiring because you'll find if you if you we have sort of an internal Techstars um, platform called Connect where. Uh, you know, former Techstars employees can say, hey, I, I'm, I'm looking for a new job. I, this is my background. Or, you know, Techstars companies that are hiring can say, hey, look, listen, we're looking for these four roles. And then you can get recommendations and referrals from great Techstars managing directors that really know the candidates very well. And if these if these candidates have gone through a Techstars program and, and, and thrived after that, you can feel really confident that they're one, very hardworking, but also they're startup people. Right. Because they've been through the grind and they've come out on the other side still really hungry. And that's what you want. So is this the Techstars Connect? Are mentors included in that process or in that in that solution? Yeah. Yeah. So you can connect with mentors. It's sort of it's kind of a way for Techstars companies to just help each other. So you'll see announcements about perks that different Techstars companies may be offering to sort of fellow Techstars companies or that big corporate partners may be offering to Techstars companies, job postings, hirings, events, things like that. And it's it's extremely valuable because that's the first place I wanna go. I mean, if, if I, you know, I always have different things I'm looking for in a candidate, but if I learn that they went through Techstars, I'm immediately excited. I'm like, okay, that's great. That means this is a, this is someone who hustles. This is someone who is hungry. This is this is probably a startup person. So, you know, I don't want to necessarily always give them like preferential treatment, but I'm always intrigued and excited when I can find that someone who's been through Techstars. Mm, awesome, man. All right. So in these these there's there's a lot more questions I want to dive into, but we're running we're running short sure. on time. So, so we gotta maybe maybe we'll do a, a round two in a, in a couple of months, especially after you guys have uh, have put to work that two fifty. Um, So uh, I'd love to jump into some of our quick fire questions. Are you ready? Absolutely. Nice, man. So first question, Big Ear Tupac. (laughs) Can I say Tribe Called Quest? Can I say (laughs) say Five Dog? (laughs) That's not the way Um, this works. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'll say say Biggie. Okay, why? I think he was... They were both incredibly brave and raw, but I think... There are, uh, I mean, some of his, some of his um, suicide, suicidal thoughts is one of the darkest, most um, candid songs I've ever listened to in my life. Um, and I think someone brave enough to, to write a song and record a song like that is, is very, very rare. Yeah. Sometimes I, I forget that these, these two guys were in their early 20s when they were recording music and when they passed. So, you know, like growing, growing up, you kind of put them on this pedestal like they're these older folks, but I've surpassed them in age. And you look back at like what they've created and it's like, damn. At 20, it blows my mind constantly. <laughs> I mean, I, I listen to a lot of classic hip hop and I mean, you know, I, Illmatic is probably my favorite album of all time, but I think about the fact that Nas was like 17 years old when he recorded that. And when I was 17, I mean, I could barely string two sentences together. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that that's incredible. The fact that they did all of that in their early twenties is yeah. mind blowing. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's it's Beethoven, Mozart level kind of that that kind of talent. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. All right. So next question, 
Um, what is a, uh, a book or a number of books that have been the most top of mind or the most uh, transformative or helpful to you personally or professionally? Uh, so little as a side note here, um, I, I'll try to answer this question as briefly as I can, but I'm, I'm a writer. I wrote a novel prior to starting my company. So I'm a huge, I, I love reading. I love literature. Um, pro- the most impactful book for me personally in the last several years was Ta-Nehisi Coates, Between the World and Me. Nice. Um, I love James Baldwin, and I think Ta-Nehisi Coates is probably the closest thing to James Baldwin uh, out there today. And that, that book just completely knocked me on my ass. Um, and, and I think it's it's probably one of the most important books of this century so far. Um, as far as, I mean, I think that's just in terms of understanding race, society, uh, so many things about America and why it is the way it is. Um, you know, good, bad, and especially ugly. Um, I just think that's an incredibly important book. But as far as business, uh, you know, I know this is, uh, I need to answer that part too. I, I really enjoy Good to Great, to be honest with you. Um, I know that's a book that, that not everyone connects with. I think it's, it's extremely helpful because it's super metrics driven. They, they track companies over decades and they built a ton of metrics of how do we really measure what's driving superior performance at these companies. And I love that their takeaways were very sort of on, on the on the surface contrarian. You know, it's not rock star CEOs. It's kind of quiet, humble, empathetic CEOs. I love that. I, I, it's it's building the right team. It's getting the right people on the bus or on the boat or whatever analogy you want to use. So that was really, really key for me thinking about growing a team and building a company. Yeah, yeah, I agree. What is What has been a a tool or what's your favorite tool from a personal standpoint or a professional standpoint one that that sort of contributes in your ability to create things and get things out into the world Ooh, good question i might actually say something kind of boring here i love boomerang i don't know if you're familiar with it it's the uh the little add-on yeah. you can get for your gmail yeah I'm hip to it. <laughs> <laughs> honestly that has it means now that I can spend, you know, all my Friday and Saturday nights sending out emails and, and scheduling them to go out on Tuesday and Wednesday. But it is, I think that's extremely helpful for productivity because when you open your inbox and you see 150 emails in there, it's just so deflating and frustrating. Yeah. And Boomerang, honestly, at the end of every day, I have a goal. And, and most days I make it, I've got my inbox under 10 emails in my inbox, by usually by four o'clock in the morning when I go to sleep. Nice, 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 nice. All right, so next one, you have $100 and two <laughs> weeks to turn this $100 into $2,000. You can't sell any stocks. You can't like liquidate your house. Um, and to the, it could be legal or illegal. That's that's your call here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what, what do you do? <laughs> I mean, I would, I, I think, I think illegal would be the way to go there. Um, <laughs> I think if in Austin right now, we're about to have ACL in two weeks. If I've got a hundred dollars, I get uh, some substances and, and go sell them at ACL for a really high markup. <laughs> I think that's probably the best bet. Um, <laughs> because, hey, listen, the, those things are scarce. Once, once it's two o'clock in the morning and the, and the late night DJs are going, people are, in the mood for all kinds of things. So I think that's yeah. <laughs> Got it, got it, got it, got it. All right, so last question. You, uh, you're allowed one meal for the rest of your life every single day. This is 
It can't be changed. It's for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. What's your meal? Ooh, that's a really good question. I'm so tempted to say Chick-fil-A. That's so boring, though. I mean, it could be I... boring, man. It doesn't have to be exotic. <laughs> if it's Chick-fil-A, I would want to know, like, what are you getting from Chick-fil-A? Honestly, I'm I'm, I'm going to go with it. I'm going to go with a 12-count chicken nugget meal at Chick-fil-A with a sweet <laughs> tea and a large fry. And I have a very special process with my sauces at Chick-fil-A. I, I kind of fancy myself a little bit of a sauce alchemist. So I like to create, I like to create a sauce that is like um, two parts ketchup, one part honey mustard, and one part uh, Polynesian. It sounds really weird, but it's actually like really sweet and savory at the same time. There you so go. I could eat that. I could, I couldn't and have eaten that for breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day. <laughs> And a chocolate chip cookie for dessert. Because you got to have dessert after every meal. I, I oh. firmly believe that. Got it. <laughs> I definitely respect it. That's, that's, that's an excellent answer. <laughs> I appreciate that. I appreciate that. <laughs> All right, man. Thank you so much for taking the time out today. I really appreciate it. Oh, this was a pleasure. I would love to do a follow-up. This was, this was so much fun. Thank you all for reaching out. It was, uh, it was absolutely a pleasure. Dope, dope, dope. All right, so what I'm going to do is uh, my team and I, we're going we're gonna to sit down, sit on this for a couple of days. We'll send you a really rough version in like the next week or so. Mm-hmm. And you have the opportunity to suggest any edits. Is there anything that you want removed? The last thing I want is anything to go out to the world that you're not happy with or you can't fully stand behind. Um, so uh, just look out for that. I'll probably send you a follow-up like probably today or tomorrow just saying thanks and everything. But um, unless there's anything else you, you want to touch on, um, have a good Good afternoon. Enjoy the weather in Austin, and I'll talk to you in a bit. Awesome. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you guys again. Uh, this was truly, this was a pleasure. And uh, I, I have now, I, I started downloading y'all's podcast uh, a few days ago, and I'm excited to listen to more of them uh, later today and tomorrow. Thanks so much, man. Thanks so much. I'll talk to you in a bit. Cheers. All right. Have a good one. Peace. You too. We can